0: the reasons retail has been destroyed by the internet everybody blames amazon everybody says it's amazon's fault and that's true to a certain extent but most retail has terrible customer service it's really boring and people if they do come up to you say can we help you with anything okay but that's pretty much as far as it goes most customer service i'm sorry retail your customer service stinks and that's why you're feeling don't blame amazon blame yourself so- and it was so lovely to be in a shop where the customer service was awesome.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Niraj Kapoor. And he's an author, sales trainer, coach, and one of Salesforce's top sales influencers for 2021. And in our conversation, Niraj and I dive right into talking about. What Niraj believes are the essential elements required for success in B2B selling. We also dig into the power of what Niraj calls going big on LinkedIn for B2B sellers. We talk about what that means in terms of elevating your personal brand and creating content. In particular, we dive into the type of content you should be creating to connect with potential buyers if you aren't a thought leader. And we explore some of Niraj's passions, including 80s rock, chocolate, and comic book collecting. All very interesting, and all this and much, much more, but before we get to Naraj, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're
0: doing in the form of a review, so thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Naraj, welcome to the show. Andy, it's great to see you. Um, we should have color-coordinated on shirts better, but no, <laughs> it's absolutely fine.
1: For those of you on the audio only version of this podcast, which is everybody, um, yeah, we're both wearing white shirts. So I don't know why white struck me today. It just, you know, I have like two color shirts white shirts and black shirts. So it's a pretty simple (laughs) choice for the most part. Uh, I try to keep my uniform choices uh, to a minimum. So where are you
0: joining us from today? Uh, From Belfast in Northern Ireland, where a previous guest of yours, uh, Jim Irving, is a good friend of mine was also on a few weeks ago. He was, he
1: was. So I read somewhere that you're moving.
0: I've just moved. So I was born and grew up in working class, you know, blue collar Ireland which was not a great place to be in the 1970s and 80s. It really wasn't. Um, there was a lot of terrorism. There was a lot of violence. And, of course, being an Indian kid just made things worse. You'd think they'd have enough problems fighting with each other and leave me alone, but they didn't. <laughs> I was going to say, and it seems like you would have been a neutral or perceived as a neutral. <laughs> you'd think they'd just go, ah, he's neither. Just leave him alone. But no, they just they, they took their frustrations out on me. And uh, it was very difficult. And at 18 years old, there was no internet. There was four TV channels. Life was so boring. And so I just wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be the next Indian Bon Jovi. So I went to England and I spent almost well, a wait wait, 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 wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. You said the next Indian Bon Jovi. Was there a
0: first Indian Bon Jovi? I, I, so I want to be the first Indian Bon Jovi. I, <laughs> okay, I just, did. Just, just want to make that sure, sure I hadn't missed something there. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, and that was it. And I, I spent three summers and three Christmases and every Sunday uh, working in a supermarket, stacking shelves. Um, I saved up about the equivalent of maybe $5,000, went into recording studios, uh, recorded loads of demos, and um, went to London, you know, handed off the demos to different record companies. We've been Epics, right. Sony, Polygram, Virgin, people like that, and Warner Brothers, WEA, and they all said no. And I was and so devastated. What, what style of music? Oh, pure cheesy 80s rock. We're talking Ario Speedwagon. We're talking Brian Adams. We're talking Boston, Aerosmith in the 80s. Just the most fun Europe poison. I mean, fun, cheesy 80s rock music. And <laughs> by, by the way, I had a six pack and slightly longer hair as well. <laughs> so that made a difference. <laughs> All right. So I think a Boston is a
1: 70s band. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later because you're talking about your fan if you're being an 80s rock music fan. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, not only were you an aspiring musician, you also told me you were a script writer. You were trying to, you're writing a children's show and you're trying to get a sitcom produced and a movie, well, actually you had a movie produced. Yeah. If people want to look up Niraj on imdb.com, there you are.
0: Yeah. Before Will Smith became famous as a singer (laughs) and an actor, I I was there two years beforehand (laughs) and people thought I I was insane. Everybody goes... I came from a town in Northern Ireland where everybody, when they left school, got an apprenticeship, or they went to college, or they went to university. That was it. Those were your three choices. Nobody went to say, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be a big movie star. I'm going to be rich and famous. And sadly, those terrible decisions I made were just because growing up in working class Northern Ireland was not easy in the 1970s and 80s. It was very lonely. I suffered a lot of isolation, a lot of racism. I just wanted to fit in. And mm. here's the thing, Andy, I, I considered myself Irish, even though my skin color is brown right. and my parents are Indian, I consider myself Irish. The problem was a lot of the locals didn't. And I never understood that. I spoke Irish. I had the accent, went to Irish school, played Irish sports, but still so many people saw me as being Indian. And I think the only way I kind of figured I could get out of this was if I become a famous rock star and I become rich, <laughs> maybe people will like me. Because at 18, you don't know any better.
1: Right. So, Irish sports, hurling,
0: Irish football, which ones? Uh, Hurling is awesome, but mainly rugby. Rugby, Uh, Football is so popular here. I mean, even though hurling is like, it's more popular in the south of Ireland, but, you know, football is massive here. Everybody loves football. And rugby is a fantastic sport as well, but it's only played by certain schools.
1: Got it. All right, so aspiring rock musician, how'd you end up doing what you're doing today? Which is, you know, sales, training, sales thought leadership, and so on.
0: Well, you know, at our age now, when you've had the experience and the emotional intelligence, you can deal with rejection quite well. It still hurts, but you can deal with it. Mm. When you're 19 years old, it's very different. Um, I didn't have any emotional intelligence. I didn't have the ability to deal with it, and my ego was so fragile. I was devastated because I figured my life is over. What do I do now? Uh, After this the is rock all I want to time. do. Is be a rock star, you know. Uh, I, was, mm-hmm. so I was a rock star by day and then writing my screenplays in the evening, and my screenplays weren't selling, nothing was happening with the rock music, so I refused to go back home because I told everybody I would never come home till I was famous. And <laughs> so sadly, I spent the next 18 months of my life on welfare, which were probably the toughest 18 months of my life. Shameful. I became a hermit. I cut myself off from the world completely. It was just horrible. Every day you're living in complete fear because you can barely eat, you can barely pay the bills, you blame everybody for your problems, the government, my parents, the way they brought me up, the, the Irish people. I mean, you blame everybody. You take no responsibility for yourself. But again, I didn't know any better. And after a year and a half, my, my father turned up one day and he said, right, this is, discre- this is unacceptable. OK, you've had enough time. You've got to get a job and because i was so terrified of him i just listened to him (laughs) because over the phone i could say no and hang up but face to face i couldn't the man's got real intimidating presence back then he he, not not as much now but really back then he was an intimidating indian father and back in those days immigrant fathers have no problem slapping you calling a son of a bitch throwing stuff at you that's what immigrant fathers do you know they they don't care about political correctness and the police (laughs) they have their own rules um And so we looked for jobs, and the only jobs I could get without any kind of degree or qualifications, the only ones, was sales. That was it. So it's like, okay. And I was looking through the newspapers because back then there was still no internet. Mm -hmm. And um, you would see in the back of the papers our top sales guy earned £2,000 last week, which is about $3,000 in commission. And I'm like... Okay, I can do that. No experience required? <laughs> Fantastic. This is brilliant. I'm definitely going to go apply for this. I applied for the job. Then 20 minutes, I got it. So I kind of figured, okay, I'm a natural sales guy because in 20 minutes, getting a job, my first interview, no problem. I turned up. They gave me an A4 script, gave me one hour to learn it, and I was on the phone. That was my training. Mm-hmm. And The key was I could not stop talking. (laughs) I couldn't give the client a chance to speak. I had to speak for five minutes nonstop. And when they interrupted me, it would be like, what do I say? My boss would go, say this. And my boss would be feeding me answers. It was so unprofessional. And yet this company was a fully functioned, profitable business. Um, What were you selling? um, I was selling magazine advertising. (laughs) And trying to sell full page ads in a magazine. And it just didn't work. And afterwards, I thought, OK, I've got to get a job in a company that trains me because I don't know how to sell. And I, I must have knocked for the next few days on about 60 doors. In London, when you knock on doors, people do not, contrary to popular belief American style, people don't open the doors and say, oh, hello, come inside. Let's have a cup of tea. Nobody said that. OK, they're like, they just close the door. They don't answer. They're just not interested. And it was about my 60, 65th attempt. Uh, the receptionist was Irish. And she listened to me, and she introduced me to the head of training. I told her my story, and she goes, "Wow, you got resilience. I want someone like you in my business." I started that Monday, and they trained me in old fashioned dip and aida and spin selling for an entire week, and that's how I started off in sales. Very cool. And you're selling what at that point? Uh, classified adverts at the back of hey, the magazine. So the
1: ad business, okay? That, a lot of people get their start doing that. I mean, I literally the first thing I sold wasn't a professional job, but when I was in college, I was selling ads for a, a theater program, for a student theater company that I, I helped run. So yeah, everybody seems to start ad sales at some point, it seems like. So how did that progress from there to, to where you are today?
0: Uh, well, what happened was, you know, in today's modern world, Dating using apps or websites is very common. But in the 90s in London, people made fun of you if you joined a dating website. They called you desperate and pathetic. But the fact was, London, as beautiful as the city as it is, the culture, the theatres, the restaurants, it really is one of the greatest cities in the world. Uh It's also one of the loneliest cities in the world as well. I didn't have any family. I didn't have any friends. And I was just lonely. I thought, what's the point? I'm doing quite well in sales at this point because I, I just, you know, I work my ass off. I didn't gossip. I prospected. I picked up the phone. Mm -hmm. And I genuinely cared about my clients. My skill set was very limited. But in the 90s, those were great skills to have. And so I just kept getting promoted, 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 pay rise, pay rise, pay rise, more responsibilities from classified ads to postcard, to Mm -hmm. advertising postcards, to doing full-page advertising, to launching yearbooks, to selling conferences and events. So over the 10 years, it was amazing. And by year four, I was earning enough money to get a deposit on a really tiny two-bedroom flat in London. I mean, it was really tiny and property prices were much lower 30 years ago as well. Sure. and um, Which made a difference. And you only had to give a 10% deposit, which is nothing, whereas today, a 10% deposit is insane. Um, and you know, I, I just wanted to go further and I really wanted to do better. So I thought, okay, I want someone to share my success with because I wasn't enjoying success by myself. And dating agencies were just not working out. I wasn't happy with dating agencies. And uh, so I ended up going to India on holiday and had an arranged marriage, which uh, I met her for 20 minutes. and Interesting. Um, Now, your, it, were your parents involved in this at all? They were heavily involved in this, yes. Yes, okay. um, <laughs> so. Very heavily involved. I was complaining to them all the time how lonely I was living in London. I was miserable being in London. Nobody talks to you. Nobody knocks on your door and says hello. There's there's no community at all. There really isn't. It's a very lonely city. And okay, having spent a year and a half in welfare as a hermit, I, I did struggle to communicate with people outside of work. Inside of work, I was great. I was like a bulldog on the phone and prospecting. All that energy and pent-up frustration was great. But when I would go to bars, I just couldn't talk to people. I, I just found it very difficult. And plus, when you spend all day prospecting and talking to people, the last thing you want to go out in the, in the evening is, meet women you're exhausted you want to go home and rest you know um and so i end up having an arranged marriage and and and, uh within 20 minutes of meeting a woman uh, we got married four days later uh, on december 1997 in front of 800 strangers it was terrifying and and by the way to anybody listening i wouldn't recommend that it really (laughs) it's you know it really is quite a scary way to start a life but you know for 20 21 years we were married you know so it, it did last a good time, you know. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, that's <laughs> that does sound absolutely terrifying <laughs> on multiple
1: fronts. Um, I mean, it's hard enough to get married to someone when you've known them for an extended period of time, <laughs> let alone maybe it's easier when you don't have to know them for a few hours. Um, yeah, so yeah, you, so you've someone you've met. You've known for a few days. You basically fly back then to to London, or do you go
0: back to Belfast at yeah, that point? Her woman, she came back to. You know, bear in mind that Indians are well connected around the world now, but pre-internet, people didn't know what London was like. They thought it was just like the Bollywood movies, where everybody lives in a big house, mm-hmm. uh, everybody's very posh. They drive Range Rovers. They you know they speak wonderfully well. It's not like London's not like that at all. I live in a blue-collar area, very working class. Uh, very run down because it was the only thing I could afford. And she would try talking to neighbors and nobody would talk to her and she found it very difficult. And back in those days, when you called abroad, it was literally hundreds of dollars a week on phone yeah, bills. Yeah.
1: yeah, uh, There was no yeah, easy absolutely.
0: way of communicating with people. So I had to stop her doing that. And she was just lonely and she, she really struggled loneliness in a big way. Sure. And I, I'd leave the house seven o'clock in the morning, come back eight o'clock at night. So wow. we didn't really have much of a relationship. It was very difficult in the beginning, Andy, uh, it's very hard to make a relationship work whenever one person has all the time in the world and one person has no time. And uh, also, for me, living with somebody for the first time was just weird. It, it, it's a tremendous learning experience. And I found it difficult being told what to do and being called a slob by somebody and, and not doing any housework or dishes because why would I? You know, I, I thought I worked all day. Why should I help in the kitchen? You know, it, it was just lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, lack of awareness. Right. Uh, And being a young and experienced male. And 25, and she was 18. So it was just, it was difficult. And it was only when our daughter was born, that kind of changed things. And she realized, despite our differences, I'm a good father. I'm a decent man. I pay the bills. So it wasn't romantic. But that's how a lot of arranged marriages work. They're based on security and just a a good sense of decency as opposed to great romance and love. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, it seems like a lot of trust.
0: Yeah, involved there is and it's difficult because you're still getting to know each other and we really had very little in common but we both loved our daughter and we both had a house mm-hmm. and whenever she got a job working in London she went to London School of Beauty Therapy which is a top place to go to become a beauty therapist and she won student of the year and I was so impressed because she was a mother and these were all young girls from rich families who were bored and their parents kind of forced them to just work a few days a week at Beauty College And she was a single mother who didn't have any of the, you know, the Mercedes and the BMWs, not all the lovely gifts and designer stuff they had. And she won student of the year. And I was very proud of her. And she worked for somebody else for a year as a beauty therapist and said, I am never working for anybody again. And that was it. She set up her own business and she's had it still to this day. And she's a very successful beauty owner, very smart businesswoman, incredibly smart, unbelievably resilient and hardworking. And someone I really greatly admire, despite the fact we're no longer together. She's quite a remarkable woman, you know?
1: Very interesting. Yeah, it's it's um I mean sort of a little bit of an awkward segue, but I think it applies somewhat <laughs> is is you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about is sort of what's required to succeed in sales. And I mean, obviously one of those things is you have to be able to form a connection with someone who's a stranger. Um <laughs> What did you learn from your experience, your personal experience, that you were able to apply in your sort of broader world experience about yeah, yeah, you know, making connections with someone, building trust um, in a situation that was much more dire than anything where, where we <laughs> had find in sales? Um, what were the lessons you were able to take over?
0: Well, in sales, a lot of people want to sell their product or service and they make it all about them. And that was a problem I had in the marriage. I, I didn't understand what compromise was. I didn't understand marriage has nothing to do with the man whatsoever. <laughs> People say it's 50-50, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't, and you shouldn't believe that either. If, if marriage is about the woman, <laughs> and it's, it's about compromise. And for me, learning to compromise was very difficult. For me, making it about the other person was very difficult. Um, But in sales, that's absolutely key. In sales, it was easy to do. In real life, it was much harder. But I realized that was important and giving to somebody else and giving without asking for anything in return. And that's a very important skill in sales. A lot of the time I see people doing nice stuff for their customers and saying, okay, you owe me a favor. And that's not how good sales works, nor should it ever work that way. So those were certainly good lessons. Um, Just being a caring, good human being Again, those are not words you hear very often in sales. Yet, if we've learned anything since this pandemic, it's that kindness, caring, a sense of decency, and really showing your vulnerability. They're actually superpowers. They really are. And I've won so much business in the last year and a half. Because I always ask people when I win business, why did I win? And when I lose business, I always ask, what could I have done better? They're very important questions to ask that not enough people ask. And most people have said to me, even if, we, if I'm recommended to somebody, I still have to pitch for the business. I don't just get it. Sure. You know, you still have to make an effort. Uh, and most of them just say, you care about my business and you just seem like a nice guy. That's it. Not I'm a brilliant sales trainer. Not I'm the number one guy in the UK. I mean, yeah, I pride myself on being very good at my job. But they trust me. And they know I will look out for their best interests. And they know I will over deliver and really listen to them very carefully. Oh, yeah, and listening is another great skill for marriage. You want to be <laughs> a good partner? Yeah, really got to listen. Not listen to respond, but listen. Listen to understand. Yeah.
1: So, um, if you were to sort of summarize, not summarize, but reduce to, and I think this is one of the problems with we have with sales today, not today, forever almost, but seems to be more acute today, Is is... There's not broad agreement of what selling is. And so it seems to me that's that I'm sort of on this mission, right? I want to come up with a common definition that everybody can buy into of what sales is. So because I know if you ask a hundred different sellers, you're gonna get a hundred different answers, and it's, that's kind of problematic because theoretically everybody should have the same idea in mind of what it is they're trying to accomplish. So in your mind, what's
0: what's sales? Sales is helping your customer win. Uh, For me, that's the most simplest basic answer I can give, but it's also a very effective answer. You know, clients don't hire me for sales training. They hire me to generate results. In other words, helping the client win. That's why they hire me, is to get results. And I wish there was like a playbook or a standard rule book that people could use when they go into sales. You know, this morning on LinkedIn, I did a post about how to write a good follow-up email because most people don't know how to do this. And I I did an an email. I posted an email from an MD. I deleted, obviously, I blocked out his name, his email address. Nobody knew who it was. And this person's a managing director of a business. And the email was appalling. It was all about him. It offered no value. And he was just desperate to book the meeting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yet every sales executive, every SDR, every AE, every business executive, everybody who sells to me sells exactly the same way. They talk about themselves, Mm -hmm. They offer very little value, and they try and book a meeting. And there needs to be a playbook of some sort where people just, they need to understand that if you want to succeed in sales, you have to invest in yourself. My father spent nine years becoming a doctor. My mother spent three years becoming a physiotherapist. My brother is a professional tennis coach. They all spent years working on their craft, learning. And even after they graduated, they still kept learning. Whereas salespeople don't have three years of learning. They maybe get a day, a week if they're lucky, but mainly a day of training. And they get nothing until 12 months later. And that's not good enough. You have to have regular learning and regular training. And that's how you become great at sales. And I look at every successful salesperson, whether they're based in the UK, Europe, Asia, America, Canada, every single one. Not one of them was a naturally born salesperson, Andy. Every single one of them started off being not very good, <laughs> but by getting coached regularly, by reading books, by often getting a mentor, by going to conferences, they became better and better and better and better. And that's what you have to do to succeed in sales.
1: Absolutely. I agree on, on the continuous learning and so on. I, but I still. I st- still think we have this, this problem. is that It's just this basic definition. Because I think if you ask most sellers, it, they think their job is to go out and convince somebody to buy something from them, right to persuade them that their product is the best product. And I think until we get people to sort of agree, and you know, your definition is fine, mine's slightly different but, but not too dissimilar. yeah you know, In my mind, sales is just listening to understand what's the most important thing to a buyer and then helping them get that.
0: Okay, that's really good.
1: If you're a seller, if you have that in mind, that's it. That's all you're trying to do: trying to identify what's the most important thing, understand—not just know, but understand what the most important thing is to a buyer, and then help them get that. And if you do that, that should be your—that should be your motivating thought every interaction you have with the buyer. And I think until we get basic agreement around that, and then it gets back to some of the points you talked about, which is in one of your posts about. So the five most powerful points in sales is it's showing an interest in another person. You know, it's it's asking questions to show demonstrate that interest. Um, you know, it's being curious. It's listening to understand, as you talked about, not just listening to respond. It's it's being generous with the value you give to help them. Those are really core human skills that aren't in any sales playbook <laughs> and sales training playbook. And it seems like we're really until we address those, until we assume that sellers know how to do those things. We assume that they're human beings that are capable of those things and have the emotional intelligence, as you talked about. And that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, whenever people call me or message me for help, what they always want is, how do I close more deals? And yet, when you spend time with them, Andy, closing deals is rarely a problem. Closing deals isn't even that difficult most of the time. It's really not. I'm not making light of that. Mm -hmm. Most people, what most people can't do is open deals and they can't engage with customers. And when customers go through that period, which many go through, where they can't make a decision for a variety of reasons, they get stuck and they don't know what to do. And they end up having this massive pipeline of people who really aren't going anywhere. That's where most people get stuck in sales. It's not the closing. It really isn't. It's the opening. It's the engagement. And it's getting people through that sales process. They really don't understand what that is and that's why I post so much on LinkedIn, and that's why I speak at so many events, and I try to educate people, and I do. I help maybe one person a day, (laughs) or two people a day, but I'm not helping the masses. It's it's really hard getting through to the masses, and I guess sales is a lot like dieting. There's so much misinformation out there and so much bad advice out there Uh that a lot of people get confused and don't know what to do, so they do nothing, or they just listen to some big guru and they just go and take that big guru's advice and it just, they fall flat on their face and it doesn't work. But to
1: some degree, <laughs> aren't, I mean, through your efforts on LinkedIn, I mean,
0: aren't you trying to be that sales expert for so many people? Oh, I am. And it's wonderful that I've built up an audience now. Um, you know, you've got 13,000 followers on LinkedIn and I would say about 5% of them. Engage with me so much, and that's wonderful. I love that 5%. They're uh-huh. the best people, they're my existing clients, they're potential future clients, and they're just people I know who are just good people that I respect and admire in my industry. And that's lovely, but I'm thinking, what are the other 12,500 people doing? <laughs> Where are they? And every now and again, I'll meet them, and apparently, they read my posts, they just never like and comment. You have all these lurkers on LinkedIn who see my posts. But never comment. Uh, most people never comment on LinkedIn or, or say anything. They just read and then move on, you know?
1: Well, okay. But I mean, I want to get back to the point I was making before, which is, you know, you're sort of making a, a point, which I I don't disagree with, that you have to, it's a very treacherous landscape and out on LinkedIn in terms of the advice that's available. So how are you know the people who are lurking, let's say, as well as those who engage, is, how are they to choose who to follow? What advice to follow? Because this is this is coming up more and more with the guests I'm talking to. I had a guest on the show a couple weeks ago. Who thought we should you know, institute a rating system on LinkedIn for for yeah you know, sales advice. We'll take sales since this is a field we're all in, but it could be advice for any business type. But um, what's your thoughts on that?
0: If you're on LinkedIn, what you shouldn't do is look at one salesperson's advice then go to another salesperson's advice. And I see a lot of people doing this. They literally look at about 20 or 30 different posts and think, okay, I'm going to do that. But that's confusing. What I tend to do, because I'm a great believer that if you make a living as a coach, you should be investing in (laughs) yourself. Because if if not, why would anybody invest in you? Mm -hmm. So what I do is, you know, when I look at people that I invest in, and I do invest a lot of money in myself and my business. I look at people on LinkedIn whose work really resonates with me And connects with me. And then what I'll do is I'll try doing that in real life. And Okay, that's not a bad idea. Let me try this uh, and see how much I invest in them. So the book behind me that you see is uh, Jeb Blunt, Virtual Selling. It's it's a brilliant book because most people are terrible, genuinely awful at virtual selling. Most of the time when I'm training salespeople, um, they look like they've just woken up 10 minutes earlier. (laughs) You know, they haven't washed. They're probably wearing their pajama bottoms as well. You know, they're they're just not, they're not treating virtual selling like they would a normal sales meeting where you get washed, changed, get in the car and do the commute. They think because they have all this time now, they just suddenly turn up unprepared and a bit frazzled and not quite ready for it. And, you know, that's a great book that I read. And I thought, this is brilliant. So I bought more of his books. This is amazing. So I invested in his course. And that's what you do. You read something that's valuable, you put it into action, and when it works and you get results, then you invest more in that particular person. You don't suddenly go to 10 more people and you know see what they're saying. And that's what I do. Um, I read the works by Jebelund, and by Daniel Disney, and by Mark Hunter. And I'm like, this is fantastic. And I invest in their books, and I invest in their courses, and I pay to see them speak live. And I'm constantly learning and keeping sharp because of that. That's a good way of doing things, but following 50 different people and reading all 50 posts in a day on sales, that's just confusing. <laughs> and it's going to lead to overwhelm. Okay. Well,
1: you talked recently about one of the best sales experiences you had was actually in a comic book store.
0: Oh, So tell, tell, so,
1: tell, so tell us about that.
0: Well, in my free time, uh, three years ago, I did a post called "Lessons Sales Lessons Learned as a Field Rockstar. I finally talked about my failure, and I put a picture on LinkedIn of in a denim jacket and a six pack and nice beautiful beautiful hair <laughs> you know uh the position i was standing in was a bit uh i wouldn't say x-rated but not really LinkedIn appropriate. <laughs> you know me posing as an 80s rock star pretty much um and i talked about lessons i learned as a rock star and so many men in their 40s and 50s reached out to me on linkedin you're saying i'm in a rock band we need a drummer <laughs> do you fancy joining us? And that was actually lovely. And so I auditioned for a few bands and I chose a band that was nearest my house, but also where I could learn as a bass player became a bit of a mentor to me, just from a musical point of view, lovely guy. And the whole band were all in their 60s and 70s. And here I was at the time I was 46. So I was learning from all these guys so much about music. They taught me an unbelievable amount about how to write a song. And it was one of the best experiences I had for a few years. But since I, after 30 years in England, I, I got divorced it's a very painful divorce. I went through a lot of, no, you know, uh, the marriage, it's a great example of people misunderstanding success and money. Um, you know, my wife and I were both successful. She was very successful. We bought an English country house in 2014. It was the, the highest I could possibly go English country house and two sports cars. And it's like, oh my god, I have to work seven days a week now. I'm miserable. I wasn't spending time with her Our relationship just slowly really slowly drifted apart And then our daughter went to university and it just collapsed. We tried date nights. We tried everything we couldn't make it work And I ended up going to see a solicitor So I became the bad guy as a result And we went through a very painful divorce and I went through a rough depression for two years a lot of mental health problems. And then lockdown happened, and I spent four months by myself alone with nobody in the world. And that really screwed me up quite badly. So my parents said, Look, suicide rate among men in their late 40s is alarmingly high. You've got to come back home. You put on so much weight. Typical Indian parents, you put on so much weight, you look terrible. <laughs> you know, come back home. Supportive um, in their own way, yes. Of course, not, not, not in the most subtle way, but in their own way. And it was the best advice I gave. So I'm actually doing this podcast now from Northern Ireland. I put everything in storage. I rented my house out for six months and moved back home. And it's been wonderful reconnecting with my parents. Uh, I see my nephews every day. I see my sister every day. I see my brother once a week. We play tennis. But more importantly, I've rebuilt my mental health. Uh, my mindset's amazing. And my business after three years is in profit. And and that, for me, has been the best. I've I've turned my life around completely. It did take me six months, Mm -hmm. but I'm so grateful I could do that. I I really and truly am. Um, Every single day, I'm grateful. And, sorry, what was the question? (laughs) I'm off the tangent there. (laughs) We're talking
1: about... That's fine. Tangents are welcome. Uh, we're talking about you had had this great sales experience in a comic book store.
0: Ah, yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So because I'm in Northern Ireland, that's why I said that. Because I'm in Northern Ireland, the band are in England. We can't play together. And plus, all the pubs have been shut for the last 18 months. So sure. we can't play. Personally, I don't feel safe going back into a packed bar. I know they're slowly opening and people are going clubbing. I don't feel comfortable, even though I'm fully vaccinated. And so I'm like, what kind of hobby can I get? And I wanted to take up a new hobby because I do believe your work should never be your life. And um, a few friends recommended comic books. So I went to a comic book store in in Belfast, Forbidden International. It's a very big uh, chain branch. And I said, look, I'm looking for comic books. I have no idea. I love the Batman movies with Christopher Nolan. I think Daredevil is my favourite TV show of all time. What do you recommend? And he says, give me a second. And he ran downstairs, come upstairs, and he goes, guys we got a newbie and all of a sudden they said, okay, what do you like doing? What's important to you? What makes you happy? Tell me your favorite TV shows. Why are they your favorite TV shows? Do you like the Marvel movies? Do you like DC comics? Do you like dark? And they just asked me so many questions, but they were doing it in a really genuinely excited way. You Mm -hmm. don't see people get that excited when they talk to a prospect. And I'm like, well, I love Daredevil for some reason because I love his ability to hear, but I love his relationship with, with the secretary, but I love the fact he's trying to make the world a better place. That's something I want to do, but I don't have superpowers. And he goes, oh, okay, you got to get this issue and you got to get this issue and you've got to try this out. Oh, and Dark Knight, you got to, if you like Christopher Nolan, read the Dark Knight. This is where he got the inspiration from. And all of a sudden, they weren't selling to me. They were telling me what they loved and you could see their passion and you could feel Feel the joy. And I'm like, this is amazing. And I left, you know, I only spent about $50 in there, but I got some great stuff and I loved it. I loved the experience, which you don't really get. One of the reasons retail has been destroyed by the internet, everybody blames Amazon. Everybody says it's Amazon's fault. And that's true to a certain extent, but most retail has terrible customer service. It's really boring. And people, if they do come up to you say, can we help you with anything? Okay. And that's pretty much as far mm-hmm. as it goes. Most customer service, I'm sorry, retail, your customer service stinks. And that's why you're feeling. Don't blame Amazon. Blame yourselves. And it was so lovely to be in a shop where the customer service was awesome. And I was made to feel like royalty. And I spent with them. And literally two weeks later, I went back and I spent $100 and I bought loads more stuff because I trusted them. So they upsold me without even trying. And that was a wonderful experience. They asked questions. They had enthusiasm. They genuinely cared. They weren't trying to hard sell me. They cared about me. And more salespeople need to understand that and learn that.
1: How do we do that? Because I think I agree with you. I think this is this is, especially in the tech sales world these days, and this has been reported in surveys that analyst firms have put out. That the buyers, the buyers' experience these days is generally perceived to be poor by a majority of buyers. Uh, majority of you know CEOs, managing directors report the same thing as that you know sellers just aren't prepared to have that type of conversation. They need. Um, or maybe aren't curious enough or interested enough to have the type of conversation to help the buyer sort of understand the problems they're trying to solve, how do we, how do we get this back to sort of human, just basic human skills? How do we, how do we train these in people? Because you know, for years, at least here in the States, I don't know if that's true in, in the UK as well, in popular culture, in TV or movies, if they were going to portray a salesperson, it was this you know, <laughs> stereotypically pushy, <laughs> salesy individual, all about them, trying to, you know, get what they want. They don't really care about the needs of the buyer. And so it's either, yeah, it's either be a car salesperson, a used car salesperson, or it'd be a a real estate agent, uh, you know, selling a house. And I, <laughs> I think back to myself. It's like, gosh, in the last three years. The most positive sales experiences I have had, most professional sales experiences I've had, are leasing a car and buying a home. And the least professional experiences I've had consistently are with salespeople in tech and SaaS. <laughs> and so I wonder, is is the stereotype going to change in, you know, five years from now or ten years when you, Naraj, write the screenplay that finally gets produced, <laughs> and you have a salesperson that that's, you know. Exhibiting sort of the stereotypically bad sales behaviors. I don't think it's going to be a car salesperson anymore or a real estate agent. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be a seller in tech.
0: Well, a lot, I speak to a lot of tech companies and SaaS companies, and I've started to get hired more and more. Before, I didn't really, they didn't really recognize me or acknowledge me because I don't specialize in that industry. But I've now got my first uh, SaaS company in the USA. I got one in Canada and I have three in England. And the reason they hired me is because the same boring people who have been doing the training for so long are just not getting results because they haven't really evolved much in the last five or 10 years. Most sales trainers, sadly, just keep quoting research. Quoting research is not good enough. Most sales trainers and sales coaches do not pick up the phone and cold call. I do. I'm a business owner. I have to. Mm -hmm. 70% of my business is repeat, referral, and LinkedIn inquiries, which is great. It's only seventy percent. The other thirty percent, I have to go out and fight for it, and I mean fight for it. Sometimes, sure, um, quite, quite often against the big players. And quite, uh, loads. <laughs> I find this really interesting, Andy. Almost every single day, I see a variety of competitors looking at my LinkedIn profile. And they must be going insane thinking, why is this guy winning business? Is he lying to them? Is he cheap? Why is Neeraj winning business? They don't, they don't get it. And one of them actually called me up and asked me, look, I don't want to be rude, but you hired me eight years ago uh, when you were working as a sales director in London Neeraj. And you're winning all this business. And I've just had to let all my staff go. And it's only me now. What are you doing? And I said to him, okay, why don't you share me a proposal you're sending out to people? And he showed me his proposal. He didn't show me all of it. He just showed me the first five slides. And I said, okay, do you not see what the problem is? He said, No. I said, all you've done is talked about yourself. Why would anybody all you've done is said, here's who we are, here's what we achieve, here's what we're about. When somebody talks to me about sales training, I never say to them, Okay, before we start, I've written two best selling books, a best selling ebook, I won five awards. In April this year, Salesforce nominated me as one of the top 16 salespeople in the world to follow. I never say that because it's not important. All the buyer cares about is am I going to listen to them and am I going to provide the right solution to them? That's what they care about, not my achievements. And so many people just talk about themselves. Now, this actually relates, of course, to the tech industry and the SaaS industry. And a lot of the people I'm working with, I go through their proposals or we do role plays together. Because role plays is really important. You can't just teach people things, Andy. You got to put it into action. So we always do role plays after, after I train them. And... Uh, what's interesting is we do like before and after role plays. And the before role play, they start the conversation saying, okay, let me tell you about us. Almost every single tech and SaaS company starts a conversation or a presentation with let me tell you about us. And let that's me tell you about the garage
1: we were founded in,
0: yes. Yeah, let, let me tell you how we started. Let me tell you about our company. Let me tell you about our awards. Uh, or, or sometimes just start talking about themselves. For at least five minutes and it's boring and it's tedious and nobody cares and so now what they do is before they even do that they have to they have to talk about the client and so what they often start the conversation um, is I noticed on your website this morning you talked about this or I noticed on LinkedIn you did this post which I liked and commented on by the way that was fantastic automatically you stand out from 99% of people in your industry because people just don't do that. And it's quite interesting. I buy from people who make the effort to research my business, which very few people do. Mm -hmm. I genuinely want to buy but most people are very bad at it. Uh, I bought life insurance recently. I changed my life insurance because the guy recognized I'd written books. He liked my LinkedIn profile. He commented my post. I bought life insurance from him. It was a very simple process uh, when I bought my car. Again, the guy asked me, what kind of car do you like? How do you want to feel in the car? This kid was in his late twenties, but he was very well trained because he cared about me. And when I came back uh, to test drive, they didn't have the car, I came back to test drive it. He said, I Googled you, you're amazing. Oh my gosh, I read your articles. And he talked about what I'd done. And I bought the car just because he was a nice guy. And Mm -hmm. Audi isn't any better than the BMW or Mercedes, by the way. It's not. They're all all three very good cars. I bought the Audi because the customer experience was fantastic. BMW were like the Wolf of Wall Street, bunch of sleaze balls, and Mercedes were just were Mercedes. We they just were too. (laughs) They were too self important. But again, it was the experience. I didn't care that Mercedes was more expensive. I cared about the customer experience. So in tech, you have to mention. About the client. You have to research the client before you speak to them, research their business and research the person. And if you don't do this, you fail before you've started.
1: Agreed, 100%. It's so easy to do these days, too. And there's just no excuse for not doing it. I, I like you, you, know, lots of followers on LinkedIn, a lot of people connect with me. Gosh, I mean, I've had, I don't know, how many pitches per day I was trying to estimate. That's a lot. And <laughs> Yeah, none of them have researched me. I mean, it's just on LinkedIn. They're using LinkedIn and yet none of them have taken the time to even look at my profile. You know, the hey, no, best good. one I talked best I, I that happened which was about a year ago, is <laughs> this guy reached out to me and said, "Yeah, Andy, this is a LinkedIn. Message, you know, direct message on LinkedIn. You know, I've looked at your profile and I think you'd be a great candidate to start a podcast." <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like All right. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you actually looked at my profile because uh, yeah, I've been doing it for years. Anyway, so all right, we're running out a little bit of time here, but I did have some really important questions to ask you. One is you say your favorite topic to talk about is chocolate. (laughs) So what's the best chocolate thing you've ever
0: eaten? portenham and mason is a very popular shop in oh yeah, London. Been very there. Oh, yeah. a bit like harrods Their ground floor the chocolates are the best i've ever had selfridges isn't far behind harrods is terrible don't touch it um but yeah i spent 10 years with the chocolate tasting society of great britain and i wow. had to stop yeah 10 years and i would rate chocolates and what i liked about them i did it all for free you not have to pay me i just did it for free for chocolates um but like, a, like a chocolate sommelier <laughs> A chocolate hey, didn't That wasn't the word they used, but yeah, <laughs> that's what it was. Um, but I had to stop because I got two root canals and lots of fillings. My teeth got <laughs> really <running me. laughs> I had to stop for sugar reasons.
1: Uh, yeah, but I was going to say, not to mention the. All right, and we yeah, talked earlier about you're such a huge oh. fan of 80s rock, so favorite 80s rock group. Now, 80s rock meaning not a 60s or 70s act that was still playing in the 80s, yeah, but an course. 80s rock group.
0: Despite the fact they haven't produced any good music in 20 years, and sadly, like most rock bands in the 80s, they're not very good live anymore, but it's still Bon Jovi. Because when I saw Bon Jovi in the 80s and 90s, it was the, I mean, they were better than Aerosmith. They were better than Europe, Guns N' Roses, anything I'd seen, Bon Jovi were the best. They really were the best. They put on great shows. I always have great memories of watching them play live at Wembley Stadium, without a doubt.
1: All right. Bon Jovi. Wow. Okay. I think that's it. We could go talk forever on a bunch of things, but uh, we'll have to look forward to having you come back and and talk again. So if people want to uh, connect with you, LinkedIn, obviously, is probably the best way to do
0: that. Yeah, please go to LinkedIn or go to everybodyworksinsales.com There's a 10-page PDF about sales tips that will help you. You're more than welcome to download that. Um, You won't be spammed every single day by me, I promise. (laughs) I don't do that. Um, Or simply follow me on LinkedIn. All right. Well, Neeraj, pleasure to meet you and look forward to talking again soon. Andy, thank you so much for having me on this show. I'm really grateful.
1: Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Niraj Kapoor for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or every listener podcast. podcasts. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So, thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.